I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Julian, welcome. I'm very excited to talk about this book, not least because it's a book that spawns uh, so many questions as you, as you move through it. Um, it's a book that doesn't announce its aims or its methods, or rather if it does, we suspect that something else is going on, that, that what it's up to is, is partially camouflaged or occurring offstage. It takes the form of a remembrance written by a man called Neil, who had been a student and latterly a friend of Elizabeth Finch, a woman who taught a university course in culture and civilization for mature students here in London. And she leaves Neil her papers in her will, and these deepen and complicate his relationship with her. And I must say before we begin, because I don't think, think this will come up in a reading, but scandal overtakes Elizabeth Finch at one point in her life. A scandal that's prompted by an LRB lecture, which makes tonight's event virtually a home fixture, I think we can say. Um, <laughs> But Julian, via Neil, uh, writes about the LRB being, LRB being viewed with great suspicion by the right-wing press, who see it as, quote, a nest of leftists, subversives, pseudo-intellectuals, cosmopolitans, traitors, liars, and anti-monarchist vermin. The best sort of people, I think we can, uh, yes. I think we can agree. I feel, I feel seen, as the kids say. Um, so one of the things I love about your writing, Julian, is the way it's... it's it's like you're moving through clear waters, but they, but they harbour deep mysteries, and those mysteries sort of play, play in your mind as you read on. So I hope tonight to get some of your thoughts on the puzzles that are within Elizabeth Finch, albeit without spoiling the book for those who haven't yet read it. To start, I'd like to ask a question about, about Neil, your narrator. He says when he joins Elizabeth Finch's class, I knew obscurely that for once in my life I had arrived at the right place. What is it that gives him that feeling? He's someone who's uh, he's had one failed marriage and he's got to have, came to have another failed marriage. He's got three children with different mothers. He was an actor, but a less successful actor than his wife. Then he sort of grew mushrooms and renovated old cars and did the sort of things that, and was front of house in a restaurant, the sort of things that actors often get diverted into. And he's reached an age, as many of the other students in the class have, where he thinks, you know, he's gone in the wrong direction and he wants to not necessarily find the right direction, but go to a place where uh, it's possible to pause. And when he meets Elizabeth Finch, he thinks that actually he's come to a place where he'll be able to find a kind of centre of seriousness to his life, which he had been missing before. Um, whether he does or not, I'm not sure, but his life certainly does get more serious after he meets her. She is sort of inspiring and quite sui generis. She says, you know, I'm going to give you a reading list, but um, you won't get marks for, for, for reading all the books and, uh, and I won't rebuke you for not reading none of them. I want you to, you know, it's the bringing out the student teaching himself or herself. That's what she wants to encourage. She wants to encourage him to go. This is a sort of foundation course. So it's not terribly important 
about the exams at the end. It's more important about making them think more clearly and better and, and surprising them and opening their eyes up. I mean, she has various teaching techniques, which uh, instead of saying, Goethe said that in his 82 years of life, he had only experienced a quarter of an hour of happiness. She says, a writer on his deathbed said this, so that they don't think, oh, what do I know about Goethe, you know, and, and therefore, what should I think about the, the notion that someone has only been, uh, had a quarter of an hour uh, of happiness in 82 years. So she, she likes to not exactly wrong-foot them and mislead them. She, she likes to sort of provoke them. Um, and, and of course, you know, she says on the first page, I may not be the best teacher for all of you. She's the best teacher for Neil, but there are others who find her, 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 her approach to learning sort of a bit unsystematic and a bit, a bit haphazard and not enough theory. Mm -hmm. She has no theory to her, but she has a fine ironic wit, I think. Yeah, not for everyone, but, but certainly no. for, for Neil. Could you, could you read us a little bit um, in his words about Elizabeth Finch? This is about uh, 30 pages into the book, um, and it's when we first hear the words and the name of Julian the Apostate. Um, Julian the Apostate uh, features largely in a non-fiction section in the middle of the book. And he was, as some of you may know, the last pagan emperor of Rome. If she taught us one thing, it was that history is for the long haul. Further, that it's not something inert and comatose, lying there and waiting for us to apply a spyglass or telescope to it. Instead, it is active, effervescent, at times volcanic. I suppose her formative years, as they say, took place in the 50s, yet she no more embodied them than she embodied the Age of Enlightenment or the 4th century AD. Like some ancient goddess, yes, I know what I'm saying, she seemed to stand aside from time, or perhaps above it. I would like to suggest that failure can tell us more than success, and a bad loser more than a good loser. Further, that apostates are always more interesting than true believers, than holy martyrs. Apostates are the representatives of doubt, and doubt, vivid doubt, is the sign of an active intelligence. I may have previously mentioned Julian the Apostate. Given who we are, we might take as our point of entry the poet Swinburne. Algernon Charles Swinburne, himself an apostate in revolt against Victorian values. Though it has to be said, a melodramatic, even hysterical one. Another example of the English public schoolboy marked in both senses by the cruel, yet to some enjoyable, practice of flagellation. He pursued traditional British paths of dissolution, from which he was rescued by the lesser poet Theodore Watts Dunton, who took him to live soberly at the Pines, number 11 Putney Hill, Putney, a semi-detached suburban villa. Fate can be such an ironist, would you not agree? The reformed sinner was, of course, a well-used Victorian trope, and none the better for it. But I am a little astray. Swinburne, in his poem Hymn to Proserpine, has the following memorable couplet. Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean, the world has grown grey from thy breath. We have drunken of things lithian, 
and fed on the fullness of death. The pale Galilean is, of course, Jesus of Nazareth, and that phrase was supposedly uttered by Julian the Apostate as he lay dying on the battlefield. Famous last words admitting the victory of Christianity over paganism. What the papers, the pagan newspapers at least, might have called a holdout hero. He was a scholar soldier. When he went off, camp off to campaign in Gaul, the Empress Eusebia gave him a library so that he could philosophize between battles. Strangely, Swinburne does not name him. He names, however, in the poem's title, Proserpine, who in the ancient world was, amongst other things, the gods being famous multitaskers, goddess and defenders of Rome. She was now about to be replaced by a different protectress, Mary, the mother of Christ, who has presided over that city ever since. We might conceive that Julian's words are meant to be read as a gracious concession of spiritual defeat. Julian, the good loser. Not a bit of it. Swinburne, like many distinguished predecessors, is identifying this as the moment when European history and civilization took a calamitous wrong turn. The old gods of Greece and Rome were gods of light and joy. Men and women understood that there was no other life, so that light and joy had to be found here before nothingness encloses us. Whereas these new Christians obeyed a god of darkness, of pain and servitude, one who declared that light and joy existed only after death in his confected heaven, progress towards which was filled with sorrow, guilt and fear. We have fed on the fullness of death, indeed. On such matters, both Julian and Swinburne agreed. Of course, E.F. went on, we should always seek to avoid self-pity, to imagine that it all went wrong in the Persian desert in AD 363, and 16 centuries later, we discover at birth that we have been dealt a hand stacked against us, allowing us to cry, it's not my fault, gov. It is better to believe that everyone else feels like this, and that a stacked hand is normal. Historical self-pity is no more attractive than personal self-pity, of which no one could accuse Elizabeth Finch. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to come back to uh, Julian the Apostate sure. in a little bit. But what is it that Neil feels for, for EF? He sometimes calls her EF. He never calls her uh, Elizabeth, let alone Liz. Uh, and I can't call her those things now. No. So uh, she'll always be Elizabeth Finch or, or EF yes. for reasons of time. But what is it he feels? Does he admire her or does he possibly love her? Yes, it is a love story in some ways. It's, a, it's certainly an unconsummated and unspoken love story. Mm. Um, and it's also the case that when she dies, which is about maybe a third of the way through, through the book, um, as he began, begins to explore her life, meets her brother uh, and so on, reads her, her diary entries, many of which are quoted in the book, he comes to, he comes to love her. Um, this isn't necrophilia. It's, um, it's, it's sort of admiration deepening after loss. And at one point he says something like, we naturally revere the, the dead and we want to respect them and do all the things that we do. But to... <laughs> I've forgotten the verb now. Is it to please them? To please them, thank you. But to please the dead, 
that's an entirely different thing. And that is uh, something which is much more active. Mm. You know, it's, it's, if, if you, if you, you know, if she, if she has affected him in such a way that he wants to live in the life, uh, live a life of the sort she would approve, and perhaps to write something about her, which she would approve of, I don't think she would have done, but that's another matter, then that keeps the relationship with the dead person uh, much more alive. So, so that's one of the strands. And he says, you know, he, as the book goes on, increasingly he says, yes, I did love her, when, when challenged by some of the fellow students. He said, well, you know, you were soft on her, weren't you? And he says, yes, I did love her, yes. And then he, he comes to that point of view where the fact that some of the other students didn't feel what he felt, uh, he, he relishes that because somehow it makes her more his, which is a strange but I think truthful way in which uh, love after death can operate. Yeah, I was wondering if, and this is a bit of a punt, and I'll look like an idiot if I'm wrong, but I'll just say it anyway. I wondered if his name was a kind of play on, on genuflection, because he kind of, because he does worship her or venerates her in certain ways, in, ways, in ways that I'm sure she would disparage if, if, you know, if he'd ever expressed it to her. I think he went through various names, and um, <laughs> it's, funny, it's funny about names. I mean, some sort of don't matter to you, and some, some do a lot, and you either get it right straight away or after a lot of struggle. Um, and then people read your re- read your book and think, oh, Neil, yes, Keneal. I never, <laughs> never, never thought of that for a moment. And a friend read it, an early version, early copy of this, and she said, um, Elizabeth Finch. I said, yes. She said, well, you've never had a person's name in the title before. I said, no. She said, well, why did you call her that? And I said, well, I don't really know. It just sort of seemed appropriate and, you know, Da, 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 dum, is a sort of rhythmic, certain names have a rhythm to them and mm-hmm. others don't. And I was sort of coming to an end and she said, um, but Finch, I said, yes. Said, well, Finch is a small bird. And I said, yes. <laughs> you know, I didn't call someone Finch because they look like a small bird. How do you do it? Oh, um, it's it's trial and error, but certainly it's it's more random than. And when meaning yeah. is imputed, I'm always happy for it to you know to open out into potential meanings. But yes. I can't say I've yes. ever planned that. I think because I lived with a, a quite angry, very lovely but angry Australian man who kind of hated nominative determinism in books, yes. and so yes. someone yes. was like true heart or whatever it was. Yes, it just yes, yes. Make him angry yes. when he got to the end and realised that was a comment on their character. He kind of wanted to find that stuff out. More organically. I yeah, suppose. well, I think he's correct. I think you're. I think, <laughs> I think you should be grumpy when people, when writers are sort of, you know, nudging you. Oh, yeah, right. You know. Okay, Neil. Neil is off the. I, uh, well, I quite like, for, especially for male characters. I don't, I don't, of course, there's probably a possibility of there are one or two Neils in this audience tonight. So, I'll be I careful. wasn't writing off Neils. Oh, very, there's a Neil over there. Very careful what there's I say. But, but I, in the genuflection. I like. <laughs> no, but I, I, I don't like sort of Christian names that call attention to themselves mm. uh, in novels, especially for male characters. My, my male characters tend to be slightly less intelligent and less willful than my female characters. They certainly, when I was starting off, I, I, they, they were the carriers of knowledge in my, in my books. I, I sort of realised after I'd written three or something like that, mm. yes. Well, that brings me on to the focus of this book because 
you aren't averse to writing books in which the narrator's own character is is somewhat occluded um, or or whose story sort of leaks in around the edges. Think yes, of Geoffrey yes. Braithwaite in Flaubert's Parrot, yes. whose story sort of comes out in, in, in dribs and drabs. Um, yes. Or even Tony Webster, in a sense of an ending, in that he's very much in the foreground of that story, of course, but for much of the novel, he doesn't really get what the story no, is. No, he doesn't understand his own um, story, yes. And in Elizabeth Finch, I think Neil says repeatedly, he says, this is not my story... He says that my case isn't relevant. This is when he mentions sort of details, the fact that he was yes. in a soap opera or yes. the fact that he grew mushrooms. And then he'll yes. always say, oh, but this isn't about me. Yes. Which I think those are protests which I think your habitual readers are never going to take at face value no. and are perhaps going to say, well, you know. Is it, is, it, is it modesty or false modesty? Is it modesty or false modesty? Yes, yes, that's but exactly But this book the question. apparently really does what it says on the tin. Like, it's about Elizabeth Finch. It's about Elizabeth Finch. Not Neil. Yes. But we do get these stray biographical details. So, and when we did, I was sort of thinking, I want to go back and reread these sections and sort of try and find out more clues about him. And yes. I'm not going to ask you to sort of speak on that because I think that's something for the, for the reader to experience themselves. Yes. But is that a response you kind of anticipated or do you just think I should be a more trusting reader and take Neil at his word? No, 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 no. I mean, we now live in a, in a world which has had unreliable narrators for, well, since the novel was invented probably mm. and untrustworthy tale tellers. And, you know, there's a spectrum between those who you immediately trust and you know that they're trying to tell you the truth mm. and those who are constructing a narrative uh, which is intended to please you and make them look better. So there's a, there's a whole range, and I just I just sort of trust the reader to to tune into that. Um, I found myself uh, when you're talking about Neil, I, I found myself wondering what his surname was, and I realised mm. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I didn't even have a surname, which I then suppressed. I think it's just Neil. Um, well, maybe I ought to he ought to be called Neil Stand Up or something like that. Just to, um, well, from Neil's stand-up to, uh, to, to melancholy, I, I found that the book had um, a melancholy edge to it because you once wrote, um, you were talking about having written for the LRB for, for many years and I actually yes. read a, an old diary piece, I think you wrote in the late 80s, and you talked in it about the, the inevitable reductivism of literary biography. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> and one of the impressions that Elizabeth Finch left me was, was the sort of, the impossibility of, of capturing someone yes. in words, in, yes. in capturing uh, a person in the round. And EF tells her class, she says, whenever you see a character in a novel, let alone a biography or history book, reduced and neatened to three adjectives, always distrust that description. Neil devotes many, many more than three adjectives to Elizabeth Finch, and still she seems to escape his grasp. Is that is that because Neil's insufficient to the task, or is it because words aren't enough to, to, to capture a person? Um, I think what's important is that the reader can understand him on an emotional level, mm. uh, rather than uh, be given all the information that is necessary. You know, his, his, her words are perhaps what um, explain her best, her diary entries and things like that, and observations. Mm. And occasional, I mean, she's a witty woman. There's, there's, there's I mean, early on, they're having, they're having lunch, and she, she leans across from her plate to his and looks at it and says, How is that? Disappointing? With a great smile. Um, 
which I pinched from real life. Um, uh, and then that sort of comes back later on a couple of times, reapplied to other things. You know, he, he's, he imagines himself, he's in a sort of daydream and he imagines himself on his deathbed and thinking, imagining her coming and sitting on his bed and saying, how is that, Neil? Disappointing? <laughs> and he doesn't know whether she's referring to life or dying or death, uh, you know, or the stage of his pyjamas or, or, or what. But I trust readers to, to deal with, you know, indirection and lack of uh, uh, full um, facts. Mm. I think also as I, I write more books, they, 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 the last three, well, apart from one called The Man in the Red Coat, which is nonfiction, have been about the same length. They, they haven't been long books. And um, I think in this one, you know, I, I tried to cut to the chase and, you know, you're in this... You're roughly in the 80s, must be the 80s, you can deduce. And it's in an institution, but I'm not going to tell you what sort of an institution. Mm. And here's, here's the teacher, and here are the, here are the students, and this is their exchange. And, I, you know, I, I, I thought, I'm not going to write... He, he, he walked across towards the neo-brutalist main building where the, the senior common room or the junior common room was, where he knew that he would find a nice range of craft beers or something like that. I kind of stopped being interested in that. Yes. You made me want a beer now. Um, <laughs> the, um, you mentioned facts, and there is, there is a sort of central section in this book which is about the historical record, even though even there, sort of inaccuracies and uncertainties kind of creep in, isn't it? Yes. Laser comments, yes, yes. but but it, it's based on EF's interest in or obsession with um, the Roman Emperor Julian the Apostate, you yes. mentioned before. Yes. Um, yes. So finding these notes on Julian in her papers, Neil's moved to write this this essay, which yes. which comprises the because sense. because at the end of the the. Of the second term, I think she she mm. asked, she sets them an essay, and he fails her. Uh, he doesn't turn anything in because he's got emotional mm. pro problems. And his children, I always call him the king of unfinished projects. And he thinks, oh God, this is another one I haven't finished. <laughs> and so after her death, he tries to, he tries to finish it. And, and the central section is what he wrote about Julian the Apostate. Yes. Would you read us a a, a short piece from yeah. that? Yes. From you that mean section. the first piece was too long. No. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, well, uh, well, tendent to every word. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Julian Apostate was a, a, a prolific uh, writer. Um, he well, he didn't actually write; he dictated, and he dictated too, so fast that he usually needed, you know, two stenographers overlapping one another, and his vast swathes. Greek and Latin literature were destroyed by the early Christians, of course, we have to remember that. And, and though his, his works in the Loeb edition fill three volumes, a lot has gone missing. And he's, he wrote a, a, a long attack on Christianity called Against the Galileans, uh, which is in, comes in three parts, and the second and the third part have been completely lost. And even the first exists only in sort of fragment, fragmentary form. Um, often from uh, being quoted by later Christian writers who used his, used his text to attack him with. Julian deliberately refers to Christians as Galileans and to Christ as the Nazarene to make their origin and origins and beliefs sound more parochial. 
He sees the religion not as a development of Judaism, but a perversion of it. So great a perversion that Judaism and Hellenism are closer to one another than either is to Christianity. Julian himself reveres the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, who were Chaldeans. Further, Abraham, like the Hellenes, believed in animal sacrifices, divination from shooting stars and auguries from the flight of birds. The foundation myth of the Galileans, the story of the Garden of Eden, is, quote, wholly fabulous, according to Julian, also entirely unfair to Adam and Eve, since God knew exactly what was going to happen. The divine thumb was on the scales. As for the Ten Commandments, they have, quote, nothing unique about them, except for the laws concerning monotheism and keeping the Sabbath. The idea of God being jealous is a terrible libel upon God he says. Why would any reasonable person revere a punitive control freak deity who despises us and visits the sins of the fathers upon their children? Julian regards all this as juvenile and half-formed. Quote, but all these are partial conceptions and unworthy of divinity. The commandment, thou shalt not worship other gods, is calumniating divinity to in a very high degree. In defiance of their own apostles, the Galileans have raised Jesus to the level of a, of a god. They venerate the bones of martyrs, which is, quote, peculiarly Christian and offensive to pagans. And look at some of the advice and instruction that they cling to. Jesus preached that they should sell all they have and give it to the poor. Imagine the practicalities of this, even for a moment. Quote, for if all men were to obey you, who would there be to buy? Can anyone praise this teaching when, if it be carried out, no city, no nation, not a single family will hold together? For if everything has been sold, how can any house or family be of any value? Moreover, the fact that if everything in the city were being sold at once, there would be no one to trade. It's obvious without being mentioned. There is a lofty incredulity to Julian's attitude. How can a religion based among the poorer castes of society and without a true civilization behind it, have come to conquer the Greco-Roman world, declining as it was, in such a short time and with such a deleterious effect. Especially when the laws of government, the form of tribunals, the economy and beauty pertaining to cities, the increase of disciplines and the exercise of the liberal arts were only evident among the Hebrews in a miserable and primitive state. Part of the answer was just that. Judeo-Christianity was not a civilization with a religion, but an oppressive religion with little of a civilization to back it up. Julian underestimated how this might be one of Christianity's unique selling points. Civilization could come later, if at all. Their religion was their civilization. It was freestanding, therefore absolutist and inevitably monopolistic. Um, a footnote, um, which I, whenever I read that bit about, um, he thought that one of the, the most primitive things that Christians did was bone worship. Um, I was reading an autumn magazine I recent, often do, the Catholic Herald recently, and there was, um, there, was a, there was a leader saying that because of COVID and because it was difficult for pilgrims to travel to Lourdes. 
the Catholic Church was going to process round each Catholic diocese of, of Great Britain a fragment of the thigh bone of St. Bernadette. And I thought, ye gods, it's still going on. It's still going on. Because, of course, the, you know, the, <laughs> the, the, the Greeks and the Romans, they didn't bone worship, you know. They're <laughs> above that. Well, yesterday I was reading an interview you gave, The Times, that was headlined with a quote, my book is probably offensive to most Christians in the world. Oh, um, I was just boasting. <laughs> um, well, embedded in the online version was a poll, and the question it asked was, do you agree with Julian Barnes's views on religion? Uh, and the responses, which were revealed only after I voted, you had to vote to get the answer. That's how they get you. Um, 64% in agreement. 36% not. Good. And I think you're probably right. I think all those 64% in agreement are probably non-Christians of one sort or another. Yes. Um, this certainly isn't a book I'll be giving to my devout Catholic mother. I don't think she'll really enjoy it. Um, but is your... Why, why in this book and why now did you want to um, issue this broadside? Against well, it's, Ju it's Julian's broadside. I, mm. I mean, obviously, I think the way I write it shows that I approve of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, you know, it does. You know, most of Western Europe is now secular, and yet um, the church, churches, you know, they maintain a hold on our society and on our on our um, feelings about morality. You know, we have bishops in the House of Lords. The only other country in the entire world which has bishops as members of the legislature is Iran, and we imagine ourselves superior to Iran. Um, uh, it's still sort of hanging about. I mean, um, uh, when, when we get our next king, Charles III, um, he wants to be not defender of the faith, but defender of faiths, in the plural. I would like him to add, and also of atheism and agnosticism, you know, which is what most people in this country are. 1833... All the bishops and the, uh, on the vote, uh, the final vote to abolish the slave trade, all the bishops voted against it. Every single bishop. I don't think they've been a force for good, let alone truth. I mean, that's the trouble. With them. I mean, that's, the, that's the base of it. I, I don't think that the Christian religion is true. I don't think any of the other any religion is true. Have you ever seen the? Um, have you ever seen the the, the face-to-face um, -face interview with Bertrand Russell. It's available on the iPlayer. They have about half a dozen um, on it. And it's wonderfully witty and puckish. And he has this sort of high-posh high voice, high-posh aristocratic voice. And um, they, the, the, the interviewer asks him, you know, the, the big dollar question, you know, well, <laughs> what if you die? And you go to heaven, and there, you know, there you find God standing in front of you. What would you say? And he says, well, I would say, but you didn't give us enough evidence. <laughs> Which I think is brilliant. That's yeah, true, yeah. Um, well, from, from religion to, uh, to politics, um, EF quotes Ernest Renan, uh, getting its history wrong is part of being a nation. Yes, wonderful, um, wonderful quote. I've, I'm sure I've used it more than once in my It is books. a fantastic quote. And yes. there's a lot in the book about intolerance, about Britain's hypocrisy 
as a nation. Uh, and later in the book, in the Julian section, we read the line, finally, the apostate is baffled by Christianity's sheer lack of sophistication, its refusal to acknowledge experts. Um, <laughs> now, you've written elsewhere Did I about, say that? Yes. <laughs> yes. You've written elsewhere about what you call Britain's deluded masochistic departure from the European Union. Um, yes. I assume that apostate line was a, the mention of experts sort of sets Brexit bells ringing. Um, I, would, I didn't think about Michael Gove at that stage. I don't think. <laughs> I don't think. I try not to let Tory cabinet ministers come into my head when I'm writing Michael fiction. Michael Gove and bone worship. This yeah, is taking yeah, a very yes, like yes, yes. psychedelic dark turn. But is Brexit an example of a, of a nation getting its history wrong and doing it in a way that also sabotages its future? Um, no, I think mainly what Renan was saying, it's interesting, getting its history wrong is part of being a nation. He didn't say getting its history wrong is part of becoming a nation, mm. which is, you know, understandable, which is also true. You know, every nation has a sort of creation myth to it, you know, and then Boadicea fought off the Romans or whatever it is. I'm not quite sure what our foundation myth is, but um, there's usually a foundation myth, and then and that has to stay because you can't say the origin of our country. We got it wrong. But he's saying also, in order to continue being a nation, you have to continue to get your history wrong. And I think you can see you can see that in the. Um, the Tory right-wing cabinet ministers who, who say, you know, to, to the National Trust, you know, a most reasonable and uh, admirable organisation which just thinks it ought to find out exactly where the money came from in, in, back in the building of the houses that they, they are looking after and they discover that 50% of them, most of the money came from the slave trade or from imperialism one way or another. And they go apoplectic, the right-wing press and the right-wing Tory ministers, they go apoplectic about this, as if history, you know, that Pope line, whatever is, is right, you know? So you, you, you come in and you're, you're given, this is a history of England and Britain. Um, I shudder to think at what I wasn't told at school when I, when I studied history. Um, and anyone who tries to say, uh, yeah, but look, look at this. <laughs> what about this involvement in the slave trade, for instance? Uh, is somehow undermining, it's always our history, isn't it? Mm -hmm. They're undermining our history. Uh, you know, any historian knows that history is, is as, as Elizabeth Finch says, not something that's just lying there waiting for us to examine it. It's something that's, 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 that's constantly mutating according to who looks at it and according to what documents are revealed. Is this going anywhere? <laughs> <laughs> Towards Brexit or away from Brexit, maybe. Oh, would be don't a good, get going on Brexit. A good thing. Um, <laughs> well, let's go back to Elizabeth Finch herself then, because um, several of the lines you you give her and some of Neil's judgments of her appeared originally in a reminiscence you wrote of the writer Anita Bruckner. Yes, yes, um, yes. Who was your friend? But as far as I can tell, EF isn't supposed to. Like map directly no, on. No, so no, not at all. No. E, F, and A, B. I wondered no. again. I'm doing it with the names again. Um, it's, not, it's not a Romain Eclair in any sense. But um, when I was first thinking of it, and the two ideas, the Julian the Apostate and that line, the House Conquered Ope of Galilean, which I first came across about 20 years ago, mm. um, and that's always been in my head. And that started drifting towards the idea of this sort of woman 
who would be a central character and who would lead us to, uh, towards it. I thought of this, what area of person I wanted her to be. And Anita Brooklyn is sort of there, but she's as a sort of kind of, I was going to say moral template. It's more like I once saw, once saw an actor on television explaining how he creates a character, and he said, you always start with the shoes. Once you've got the shoes right, you can then build up. And in a way, uh, Elizabeth Finch is standing in Anita Bruckner's shoes. But then uh, from the ankle upwards, she's her own woman. And I shamelessly borrowed a couple of that thing about how is that disappointing. She said that to me over lunch. And I just thought I put that in a piece of journalism about her. It's too good not to reuse um, and then reuse and then develop because it comes in twice more in the book. Well, another another aspect of how I've got, I'm going to. I do more. think I do think Roma and Clay mm. are sort of it's a sort of low form of literature, isn't it? You Just haven't written one, have you? <laughs> <laughs> a, a sudden worry it comes into my, my head. No, yes. no, yes. no, I haven't. Um, why? Because it, because they think it's sort of it's 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 a betrayal of, of, of trust. Uh, well, or? it's often, no, no, no. I think it's much. That's like it's a short. It's sort of short termism because, mm. I mean. And also, if it's if it's based on real people in a very close way, then I find it's it, it's much harder to make the characters do something that you want them to do. Mm. You you can certainly take a bit from a character's real life and then build a fictional character from the shoes upwards. It seems to me. Remember, there was Dylan Thomas. Someone here will know the answer to this. Dylan Thomas wrote wrote a, a, a roman a clay about sort of the London literary scene in the sort of 40s. And it was, it was held to be deeply libelous, and so it wasn't published till after his death. And I remember reading reviews of it, and I thought, but most of these people have been forgotten, mm. you know, and, and wh wh what's the interest of a satirical pen portrait under another name of, of, of you know, it's, 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 sort of sust it's sort of food... Value is quite short term, it seems mm. to me. Well, one more from me, and then we'll um, open it to the to the floor. Can I ask the audience a question? Yeah, it's been on my mind for about the last three hours. I assume there are some wordle doers amongst you. <laughs> um, is the answer today <laughs> something you can eat? Yes. Thank you. Good. <laughs> Da crowdsourced, down to, down to the very last line, yeah, yeah, and it begins with M. Yeah, thank you. Good. Um, Sorry, what's your last well, question? No, no, who cares now? <laughs> this is more important. I've got to go and complete a wordle. Um, so Neil describes EF as an extremely principled person. He he yeah. says there were principles very close behind, if not actually embedded in, all her actions and thoughts. Whereas for me, for most people, our principles have a more glancing effect on what we do and what we say. And EF describes herself in her notebooks as solitary but not lonely. And she does seem in some ways like a religious, like an ascetic. Despite her protestations, did her highly principled approach to life, do you think it made happiness harder for her or even impossible to obtain? There is a sort of a, a love story which Neil tries to investigate and gets nowhere with. But. Yes, and, they, and the students always imagine uh, what, her, what her private life must have been like and, mm. and, um, uh, and who she might have 
had affairs with, and they don't really get anywhere. Um, I think one possible answer is um, comes into a conversation towards the end with um, a, a Dutch woman who Neil has an affair with, and then twenty odd years later goes back to sea in Holland, and they sort of talk about what what EF thought about it all. And at one point he says, "So do you think that that she thought that?" love was more about truth than happiness. And the Dutch woman says, yes, I think she did. And that relates to a quote from Epictetus, which comes in several times in the book about what, what, is, what, is, what is good and truthful for us and what we have to just ignore. Mm. Um, it's, you know, people pursue love for many different reasons. Um, though I don't know many who pursue it because, well, they pursue it because it's true, but that's mm. not the same as as you're there because it produces truth rather than it produces happiness, which most of us think is its purpose. Yeah. In a rather low-minded way, <laughs> uh, EF would think. Yeah, she's, she's, she's fascinating in that regard. There's, there's so much more that you want to you learn about her, but that part of the, the central structure of the book is, is about that sort of unbridgeable yes. gap, I think. And it's also, tantalizing. also, as the book comes to an end... Neil has spent a lot of time trying to find out as much as possible about her as he can. And he realises that she's sort of escaping from him, or rather she's becoming, her image is becoming sort of petrified. Mm. And he realises that this woman who died 20 years previously and who he feels he's known very well, he knows her no better than he knows Julian the Apostate, a character who lived fourth century AD and about whom there's lots of very unreliable stuff and I think that that you know I think I often think about the, the people that I, I remember and have known who've died and how I remember them and to take a very simple case you know I had one set of grandparents who I knew and my grandfather in my view was there are only two people who really knew them alive, and that's me and my brother. Mm. I thought that my grandfather, who had a, a bristly white moustache and had been in the army in the First World War and was, had a soldier -like, soldierly bearing, was sort of incredibly stern and cold and, to a 14-year-old boy, somewhat brutish. Um, and he once borrowed a copy of my copy of Lolita, uh, had a, and he went into my bedroom. He went into my bedroom when he was staying in our house. And he went through my books and he found a copy of Lolita. And then I, he, I sat there of an evening and he would, he, first of all, he opened it like this, you know, and, which I hate. I hate breaking the spine of a book. And then he read it all. And then he gave, he gave it back to me. He said, well, he said, it may be good literature, but I thought it was smutty. <laughs> And so that's sort of how I remember him. My brother remembers him completely differently because he was the firstborn. My brother was the firstborn, and so he was the favourite of my grandfather. My grandfather sort of taught him woodworking and things like that and left him his enormous toolbox when he died. And my brother felt at ease with him. I felt much more at ease with my grandmother, uh, who seemed to me sort of, you know, pink-cheeked, cosy, uh, hugged you and made apple pies. My brother thought that she was sort of silly and boring. Now, 
these, <laughs> these are completely incompatible. And no one now can tell you what, what, what Mr. and Mrs. Bert Skoltok were actually like. You know, I mean, I tried to put, I, I tried to write about them in a book called Nothing to Be Frightened Of, and, and you know, went and looked at all the records of his regiment in the First World War, and it was at one point under the command of of, of, of Montgomery of Alamein. I mean, this was before he became Montgomery of Alamein, and of course, <laughs> you you put it in the novel, and people say, oh yeah, you would say that. But, you know, the records of the regiment had been sort of blown up in the Second World War and the German bombing. And so, you know, even even what... You know, I've got two of his First World War medals. um, And one of them says something like, for being there, you know, (laughs) for turning up in 1914. Um, So what's left of them after they're gone and how they exist in such fragmentary and differing memories. Mm. I think about that a lot. Well, I think your grandfather should have it be blurbed on the uh, Penguin Classics edition <laughs> of Lolita. I think that would shift even more copies. Um, do we have questions in the audience? We have a roving mic. We've got time for a couple, I believe. <laughs> I, um, sorry, just thinking about the extracts. Uh, if I wasn't sitting here, they sound like non-fiction. I only know they're in a novel because I'm sitting here. Um, yes. Obviously, you're very well known as an essayist as well. Um, yes. Basically, my question, I can't think of anything, any easier way to tie my head up in knots than trying to write an essay in someone else's voice. Is it, is it difficult to try keep yourself from writing a Julian Barnes essay rather than a Neil essay or an Elizabeth Finch lecture, if that um, makes sense? Yes, that makes sense. Um, I, w- I could I could say well of course I've written a number of books you know and, uh, I think probably Neil's voice isn't you know it, it it's not very I would say, I would offer you the same facts if I was writing an, an, an essay uh, and then you shift the sl- the tone slightly so that it's it doesn't sound like me you know he doesn't make many jokes Neil I've I've also you know written novels in which nonfiction features. So I'm 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 sort of crossing the boundaries all the time, and 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 the only thing that concerns me is is this an interesting story or not? If I'm writing it as fiction or non-fiction. You mentioned earlier about getting straight into it and having shorter novels now, yes. and um, I also love your short fiction and your short stories. And I was wondering what the different approach is and how you decide when an idea might be more suited to a short story versus the novel form? Uh, It's usually quite clear to me once the idea comes into my head, whether it's something for a short story or a novel, and also roughly how long a novel it's going to be. It's very odd. I I mean, I know that writing students and so on are taught to start with short stories often because it's supposed to be easier. I think it's actually easier to write a novel than a, a short story because the the, the, the flaws in a, in a story always show up and the flaws in the novel you get away with. Yes? I find everything difficult to write. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't, but I didn't write any short stories till I'd written about, I don't know, four, four novels or five novels and then suddenly I started getting ideas for short stories. And... I published three collections of short stories, and since that third collection, I haven't had a single idea 
Well, I've had an occasional idea for a story, but uh, I write about three, three pages in my notebook and then I, I've just written the start of it and I don't know where it goes. I mean, there are, there are, there are sort of, there are ideas which are not so much ideas as ideas for ideas. I mean, when I was writing History of the World in ten and a half chapters, which is it, it, all, all the chapters, they're all, they all take place on sea or water. Water is the pre prevailing image. And I got terribly excited one day when I thought, you know, the, 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 the old phrase about, you know, it would be as useless as rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. I thought, I'm going to write the deck chair attendant story <laughs> from the Titanic. And I, I went around with a smile on my face for days. And I never got anywhere with it. I didn't, I didn't write a single line. And so, and I think it's sometimes true, the, the, the idea is as good as it gets. It's probably best not to translate it into a prose reality. Well, we have this prose reality, and short or long, we are, we are at time. Um, thank you all for coming. Uh, and please give it up for, for Julian Barnes. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.